0: Good morning. Well, it's great to be back here. I think I preached here the last time, uh, four or five months ago, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to be back and to bring God's word again. Uh, we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I didn't know that today was uh, membership Sunday, uh, but it's a perfect passage to look at as uh, we consider the commitment that we have towards each other as believers. Um, I also, I chose this passage. Drew said I could choose whatever I wanted, and uh, I just—I mean, this is not about me—but I just got engaged recently, and I was like, "Man, well, thanks, mom." <laughs> One person's really happy. Finally, no, but I was—I thought there's some people in here who know that, and I was like, "Man, everyone's gonna think I'm choosing First Corinthians 13 because it's like the wedding passage." Um, but I think this passage, uh, hopefully, will be clear to you by the end of uh, this message that this passage is for all of us, and. It's one of the clearest passages um, outlining what our duty is to each other as Christians, um, how we are to love each other, what that looks like. And so please open your Bibles um, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And uh, before we jump in, I want to talk a little bit about the context. So uh, if you know about the story in Corinth, First Corinthians is a book um, written to a church that's not doing so well. Um, today, if we knew of a church that was like the church at Corinth, uh, most of you would probably leave and find another church to attend. Uh, there were things like uh, lawsuits going on between members of the church. There were men sleeping with their mother-in-law, both members in the church. Uh, there were boasting and different parties. Some people would say, "I'm of this one group," and another of this other group in the church, and it's really a, a dire situation. The whole book of 1 Corinthians is, is kind of like a, a rebuke that Paul is giving to this, this church. And thankfully, I know this church. You love each other well. I know many of you, and I spent a lot of time with you. I know this is not the same situation, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that this book is written to the church at Corinth and all the churches. The truths in this book are not just for the church at Corinth thousands of years ago but they're for us today there's all kinds of things in this book like the foolishness of the gospel that god chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise there's an exhortation to purity as christians to abstain from sexual morality because of our union with the lord jesus there's uh, rules and Regulations for the church service even in this book. And there's, there's all kinds of uh, different kind of almost seemingly random practical things that are addressed in this book. But chapter 13 comes between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Most of you probably knew that already. But, but chapter 13 comes right after chapter 12 where Paul begins his discussion of spiritual gifts. He, he gives us this picture of the church as the body of Christ that the Lord Jesus is our head, and we are all part of the body. And as we each use our individual gifts, we grow up to mature manhood. We read that passage in Ephesians chapter 5. And Paul is addressing this because the people in Corinth are starting to compare the giftings that God has given them to each other. One person is gifted with the gift of speaking in tongues, and it's flashier, it's more attractive, and those people are starting to become puffed up and brag and look down on someone with the gift of, let's say, hospitality. Those with the flashier gifts, maybe today an equivalent could be the preachers and the elders start to look down on the members of the church with each one of their unique giftings. And Paul writes and rebukes them and says things like the eye still needs the hand, all the different body parts need each other. He need to think of the church as a body. And then he says something at the end of chapter 12. And he says in verse 31, "And I will show you a still more excellent way." Paul says, "I'm going to show you a still more excellent way." And in chapter 14 he's going to resume his discussion of spiritual gifts in the church and how they're to be utilized. But Paul says, I'm going to go on a little aside. I'm going to digress for a minute and I'm going to tell you what is the most important. What's the most important thing? What's the most important thing for us as Christians? Someone said Jesus, that's, that's true. But what's the most important thing for us as believers? Paul says it's It's love. And we're going to look at three things, three different sections, three points as we consider this chapter. I'm going to move pretty quickly because um, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, hopefully. Um, And I have these three sections. Number one is the necessity of love. The necessity of love. Look at, at verse one with me. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul begins this section by impressing upon us the necessity of love love is necessary for the christian and he does this with kind of a a rhetorical device and he he says these three well actually there's five in the english there's five if statements five almost like even if statements even if i have this but i don't have love he says i am nothing the first one he says actually goes back to what the Corinthians are struggling with, what the Corinthians are debating. Those who speak in tongues are comparing themselves to others and saying, I'm better than this person. And what does Paul say? He, he starts off and he says, if I speak in the tongues of men, and the ideas, and even of angels, not just speaking in tongues, but even if I could speak the language of angels, if I was that advanced, if I understood those kinds of mysteries, like the languages that angels speak in, but I didn't have love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just noise. It's just loud. It's annoying, it's distracting. The clanging cymbal idea a lot of of scholars think it's a reference to pagan ritual practices. You you sound like a pagan. If you're just if all you're you're into is these miraculous or or Uh, fabulous demonstrative gifts without love you're nothing Paul specifically says here without love you're a noisy gong or he's a noising gong or a clanging symbol as a, a second if statement if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love I am nothing These are all references to things that are already happening in the book of 1 Corinthians. He talks about the the gift of faith earlier in the book. He talks about the gift of prophecy in in the earlier chapters and in the following chapter. He talks about the mysteries of Christ crucified on the cross and the knowledge that puffs up. He talks about all these different things. And Paul's saying, even if I had all these gifts that you take and boast about in your life, if I had all of them at once, To the the highest extent. But I don't have love. I'm nothing. Totally worthless. Finally says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Even if I were to go and sell all my possessions, like Jesus told the rich young ruler, and give them to the poor. But I didn't do that out of love. It's nothing, God's not even pleased. There's no merit to it. Not a little bit, not, oh, that's good. No, there's no merit, it's nothing. Same with with martyrdom, if I deliver my body to be burned like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if if I were willing to go to the final end for my faith, but have not love, I am nothing, I gain nothing. This is the only thing that matters to the Lord, not our spiritual activities, not all of the things that we do when we become a part of a church or a believing community. The only thing that that matters before God, of course, faith in Christ, but as we treat each other is our love for one another. And for me, this has been really convicting because I get so caught up in my own life in all the things, I'm, I'm really involved in my church down south and I'm starting a seminary. And I get so caught up in all the things that I'm doing. You know, I've got to teach at youth group or I've got to preach or I've got to, you know, go to this church thing or this banquet or whatever. I've got to, you know, I have all these requirements. And for me, it's so easy to get caught up in doing those things and, and, and forget what really matters. Love towards other people. I think another thing we can see from this this first point, the necessity of love, is that character matters so much more than gifts. Character matters so much more than gifts. It's so easy to be told, wow, you know, you are so gifted at this or you're so gifted at that, and to become puffed up. But those gifts that God has given us, they don't have anything to do with our character, they don't have anything to do with our own walk with the Lord our own treatment of one another. Paul rebukes this church by taking the the example of himself and says, if I were to do all these things but lack this one ingredient, it's worthless. God doesn't even care. And so Paul, in this negative sense, starts off by getting their attention by saying all these things you're arguing about If you do these things without love, it's totally worthless. God is not pleased. And it's supposed to be an attention grabber. It's supposed to get you to go, wow. You mean this whole book that you've been writing, if I do all these things but don't have this this one more excellent way, it means nothing before God? So what does that look like then? How do I know that I'm loving other people? Well, secondly, Paul begins in verses 4 through 7 and tells us about the nature of love the nature of love and the first thing to notice here is Paul gives for each one of these descriptions of love he gives a verb it's not a feeling but he gives a verb he is something that love does love is active and each one of these things is focused on other people each one of these things is needed you need another person to be able to do these things well. You can't do them on their own. One one person said, far from being a displaced hymn singing the praises of love as a virtue, chapter 13 is a call to a way of life that addresses real problems in the church. The purpose is to debunk self-centered spirituality. The purpose is to debunk self-centered spirituality. And we live in a world that is obsessed with ourselves. Luther already said that we are in Latin. He said we are incurvatus in se. It means we're turned in on ourselves. Ever since the fall, our natural bent is to look inward about our own needs, our own desires, our own concerns, and we become obsessed with ourselves. And then what do we see? Around us in the world, that is all that is praised. You know what your real problem is? All these things are going wrong in your life. All these things you know, are, you're disappointed about. You just need to learn to love yourself. You need to grow in self-love. Now, of course, we can, we can sinfully uh, not consider that we are made in the image of God. But, but Paul and the Lord Jesus himself, when he talks about self, what's the main thing that he says? Deny yourself. The ethic of the scriptures is not to seek to love yourself more. It's to deny yourself. And paul says in this list of first corinthians 13 all these things are focused on other people and what's good for them it's oriented outwards and even this list it's not necessarily a complete description of love this is responding to specific things that this church in corinth needs to hear specific things that are related to what paul's been writing about he writes this list that describes love these different verbs so that as the corinthian church is listening they start to feel Convicted, they start to feel, oh man, I'm not really doing that. So of course, there's other things that describe love, but let's just quickly go through each of these. Number one, love is patient. Love is patient. This is a convicting one for me. I'm not a very patient person. Uh, I drove up with my fiance; she can attest to that on the drive up here from San Diego. But love is patient. It waits. It endures injuries. When someone else offends, it doesn't react. Love is patient. It waits for God's timing to change them. It's not only patient, love is kind. It's the only time this is used in the New Testament as a verb. And it's, it's not just patiently putting up with someone, like patience, but you're actively reaching out. You're actively loving and blessing other people. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It's not jealous. It doesn't want what someone else has. It doesn't wish that we were in someone else's shoes. It's not disappointed when someone else is blessed. Love wants what's best for someone else. Love rejoices when other people are blessed. But not only that, love does not boast. It doesn't just want what someone else has, but love doesn't do something specific. Love doesn't brag about its own virtues. Love doesn't look for its own attention. Love doesn't want the praise. Love wants to deflect the praise. But for us and for me, how much of our lives is lived to get as much attention on ourselves as possible? To get as much focus on ourselves as possible to be valued and praised to be thought highly of and yet that's the opposite of love it doesn't boast it's not envy paul continues it is not arrogant love is not arrogant it's the idea of being puffed up this is exactly what's happening with with the, with the people in the church of Corinth. They're, they're puffed up, they're, they're prideful, they look down on one another, they show partiality, they don't wait for the poor to take communion together. And Paul continues to repeat some of the same things, but, but look what he says here. It does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. Isn't that convicting? How often do we just insist on, well, this is the way that I do things and other people need to adjust. This is, well, that's just me. They're going to have to learn to like it or else we're not going to be friends. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Love looks to do things and to adjust and to defer to others. Love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. This is an especially convicting one for me as well. I can be very irritable. Things happen. Something, you know, goes wrong with my seatbelt. And I'm going to, like, pull it extra hard and be bugged for, like, two minutes on the road or whatever. Little things. I, like, I, I used to always do that. I still struggle with that. Like, you know, if something's not really, like, working right. Instead of, you know, finessing it, I'm, like, going to just totally force. Like, break it. You know, and then you put it back together and set it aside like somebody else is going to break it. But love is not irritable. It doesn't respond like that. It's not it's not harsh. It doesn't it doesn't naturally just respond in that that annoyance. I love this next one. Love is not irritable or resentful. The NAS says it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Are you keeping a record of wrongs about anyone? Are there relationships in your life where you know you need to forgive them, but you consider those things that they have done in the past over and over possibly? Love doesn't keep those things in a book, is is the idea literally in Greek. I don't keep a book of the things that other people have done to me. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not rejoice at injustice or wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth. This possibly is one of the most uh, countercultural descriptions of love. Other people would say, you know, it's good to be patient and kind and not hold something against someone. But here, Paul says that love does not rejoice at what is wrong, but rejoices with the truth. This in many ways directly confronts the world's idea of love. The world's idea of love is just acceptance. Love is tolerance. Love is letting somebody be who they are. Love is love. But what does Paul say? Love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth and to love someone is to tell them the truth. Sometimes we can do this in the wrong way and we can insist, well, well, I'm loving them because I'm telling them the truth and we we can be harsh and we don't, as we read earlier, speak the truth in love. But I don't know about you, but for me, I want to hide behind that. I don't want to tell people things they don't want to hear. I don't want to confront my friend. I don't want to tell somebody that there's sin in their life that I see because I, I don't want to have them bugged at me. I want to, I want to save that, that relationship. And I don't want to deal with the difficulties of it. Or perhaps with your children, if you're a parent, you know, what, is, what, is, what does the scripture say? He who spares the rod hates his son. He who spares the rod, he who doesn't discipline, hates his son. The Lord loves those whom he disciplines. We read that earlier in Revelation 3. Love doesn't allow sin to continue in someone else's life. Love rejoices with the truth. Love wants the truth for someone. Love wants what's good, not what's wrong. Love does not accept people as they are. It does in a relationship where to love someone and I accept you as you are. I'm going to love you, but that doesn't mean that I'm never going to tell you the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things. It. It doesn't, it goes back to some of the same things. It doesn't keep that book of wrongs. It even covers, it's like throwing a blanket and covering something is the idea in Greek. Silences. Love believes all things. Obviously, this doesn't mean that it believes, you know, the best in everybody after they've continually wronged you. That's often a misinterpretation of this passage, but love believes that God can change people. Love believes that God is alive and well and can work in someone's life love hopes all things it's not pessimistic or cynical love endures all things now all of these many of them repeat the same ideas over and over but here's what paul is trying to say love is focused on other people love goes outside of itself and focuses on others and they're good what does jesus say all of the laws fulfilled in these two things love god with your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself And we see this in Paul's life. I don't have time to do this, but if you look through the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see. We see in Paul's life that he bears with the churches. He's like a a tender mother nursing her children, he says about himself. He says he's not gonna boast about himself except for his weaknesses. He's kind and gracious, even to the Corinthian church and some of the things he writes about them. He calls them saints. Paul demonstrates this love. But I don't know about, about you, but when I read this list, it's convicting. It's something that you go, I, I fall short of that. I don't love people like I ought to. How is it even possible to be this other-centered? How is it possible to not keep a record of wrongs, to not be irritable, to not insist on your own way, to bear all things? How can you even love people like that? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me, as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is not praise or a list to just love as this general principle that exists outside of any person. This is a list that specifically demonstrates God's love towards us in Christ. Every single part of this list we can apply to the Lord Jesus. Jesus is patient. Think of the patience of the Lord Jesus in your own life and in the gospels. And by the way, when I, I'm gonna go through this whole list and talk about Jesus's love. I don't want you to just immediately think, okay, how can I be like Jesus? But first of all, think, this is Jesus's love for you this morning. Not just, I need to be like Jesus, what would Jesus do? That's true. But this is the heart of Jesus towards you this morning. Jesus is patient. I like to just think of Peter, because he's the disciple I relate with the most. How many dumb things can Peter say? How many dumb things can he do? And Jesus continues to be patient with Peter. He's patient with us. God provides for us. He meets one of our needs. And an hour later, we're worrying about the next thing. But he's patient and kind. Jesus is patient and kind. I love that passage in Isaiah talking about Jesus that he will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax you're struggling, if you're burdened with sin or or anything in your life and the hardness of your circumstances, Jesus is gentle. He's kind. Jesus did not envy or boast. He didn't try to take from others or put them down. He always tried to elevate others. He was not arrogant or rude. He did not insist on his own way. In his human nature, remember what he said to the father? Not my will, but your will be done. He did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoiced with the truth. He told the truth and people were offended. He told the truth to the Pharisees. He confronted them for their their wrongdoing and for their injustice. And he told his disciples the truth. He tells us the truth by the Spirit when He convicts us of our sin so that He can bring us back to Himself with His forgiving love. Jesus bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, and endured all things. He bore all things. What a better, what, is there a better description of what Jesus did for us? He took all of our sins, all of our lack of love in this situation. He bore it Himself on the cross. He took that justice and punishment that we deserve in our place. He was our great substitute. He was the scapegoat. He was the greater Isaac. He suffered in our place. I I skipped one when I said that Jesus was not resentful, but he doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He takes your sin Whatever sin you think of this morning, and he, he throws it behind his back. It's in the depths of the sea. It's as far as the east is from the west. And so this, this love is not just a description of love. It's a description of what Christ demonstrated in his life, of his love for you, his tenderness, his concern for others. And it might seem impossible, but, but Paul understood That as he gazed at the glory of Christ, as he read the scriptures and looked for the glory of Jesus, he was transformed. We don't try to do these things by writing down this list and looking at it before every interaction that we have. Instead, we look at who Jesus is in the scriptures. We see his glory. We worship him. We come together as a church And we learn more and more of Him. And as we see Him, we become more and more like Him. As we gaze at His glory, we're transformed from one level to the next. And so, if you're convicted, like the Corinthian church would be, be encouraged that you have the Holy Spirit. And as you sow to the Spirit, you will reap from the Spirit. As you sow, to the word of God and seeking out the glory of Christ, you will reap the fruit of love. This comes from gazing at the glory of Christ. After Paul looks at the nature of love, we saw the necessity of love and we talked about the nature of love. Finally, we'll look at the never-ending character of love. The never-ending character of love. Look at verses eight through 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Here's how Paul ends the section. He sees this church, their strife, there's division. Some are following one leader, others are following another. They're bragging about their gifts. And he's discussing the proper use of spiritual gifts and he, he wants to emphasize love. And so he looks at, again, the necessity of love that if you don't have it, no matter what you do, God is not pleased. He demonstrates more and more what it looks like. And finally, as the final punch, Paul says, I want you to know the never ending character of love. All these other things, All these other things that we do as a church, they're going to cease. What does Paul say? As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. All these specific giftings that the Corinthians are arguing about, they're going to go away. When we are in heaven, there will be no need for them. We could even add in here, I'm sure we will know and remember the scriptures but we will have no need to encounter God through the scriptures in heaven. We will have no need for church. We will have no need for any type of intermediary between us and God. It will be direct contact. And Paul says that, he said, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away everything that we're experiencing right now is just partial it's part it's small it's a a reflection of what one day we're going to experience he gives two examples then he says when i was a child i thought like a child i reasoned like a child i i did all these things like a child but when i finally became a man i gave up childish ways i was just thinking about how you know i i visited a few places that i haven't been since i was a little kid and you know when you're a kid you're like man this house is huge it's got like five six foot counters and all of a sudden you go back when you're an adult and you're like, this place is tiny this is like i thought this place was huge i'm staying with my parents at our our mobile home in scott's valley and i'm like man i don't how do we all live here with six people it's pretty small but paul is saying not only that idea that we have a, a greater perspective, but we've also ceased doing these things that we did as a child. When, when, when you're a child, you play, you have no responsibilities. It's, the character of your life is totally different than when you become an adult. Now, we, we still play and we still do fun things, but the experience of a child is so different and limited in a sense to the experience of an adult and what they see of life. And Paul says, that's like our relationship with the Lord now. It's not like the things that we are experiencing are worthless or have no value, but they are not the fullness. They're just a part of what one day, just a taste of what one day we will experience. I love thinking about all the things that you enjoy in life, all the fun things, food, family, relationships, travel, hobbies. God created all those things for our joy. And he knows how to infinitely satisfy us one day for all eternity. But Paul doesn't just say it's like a child who becomes a man. What else does he say? He says, now we see in a mirror dimly. There's different ideas about what this means. Some people say you know the mirrors weren't as good back then. So you kind of just, which I think probably, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I don't really know if they have like Ikea mirrors that, you know, you just put some Windex on there and you see yourself really well. Or like those super, my dad has those ones that you can see your face all up close, the little circle ones. I don't think it was like that. It's like a mirror, they're, they're, they're more, more, uh, not quite as bright possibly. But another idea is these mirrors are are something that we don't actually see the person, but we see the reflection. We're encountering ourselves through something else. There's something separating us from the direct experience of looking at ourselves. And Paul says, we see in the mirror dimly now, but then face to face. If you're a Christian, when you die, the second you die, you are going to stand face to face with the Lord Jesus. Isn't that great news? We don't have to try to imagine what he looks like anymore, look at little pictures. We will see him as he really is, face to face in all his glory. What we experience now is good. It honors God. We, we read about, about, about the Lord Jesus in the scriptures. We talk to him in prayer. We sing about him praises. But all of these things pale in comparison to what we will one day experience face to face. And now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This is not just knowledge. This is not just knowing like information. This is intimacy. Paul's talking about love here and what he's trying to highlight is, this is the one thing that's gonna last forever. Everything else that you can get sucked into in your Christian life is gonna cease one day. There's gonna be no need. But there's one thing that if you do now, you will, or, or, well, there's one thing that we will be doing forever no matter what. And that's loving God and loving each other. Paul says, this is the focus. This is the goal. This is the only thing that matters. We will know fully, even as we've been fully known. God knows every detail of who you are as a person. And this word is not just knowing information. Again, it's intimacy. God loves you. God created and designed you and your personality. He made you in his image. And if you are believing in Christ, he loves you so much that he would send even his son to die for you. He knows you like that and one day we will know him fully. Doesn't mean we'll grasp everything about God, but we will know Christ fully to become a man so we can understand him and we will know him just like he knows us. Won't that be a great day? I'm excited for that. And I don't know if if you're thinking about these things, my guess is you're not thinking about how you're better than other people. When you start to think about how one day I'm gonna stand before God and I'm gonna see Jesus Christ face to face and I'm gonna love and know him and have the intimacy, not by faith, but with my own eyes. It's hard to start thinking about yourself and how your gifts are better than other people or start bragging about how much better you are or to be jealous or to be irritable. Paul is in the middle of his argument about spiritual gifts. Paul interrupts himself and says, Let me, you're totally thinking wrongly. You're missing the whole point. Remember, you're gonna be loved by God for eternity. And you're gonna love others. None of these things matter. And so in that way, what Paul is trying to communicate to us by by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that love is the only thing that matters for us as Christians because it's the only thing that will last. One day, even faith, will be sight. Hope will be reality. Now, of course, faith is the only means by which we enter a relationship with God and that he draws love out from us. But there's one thing that will last forever. Verse 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide or remain. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray.